0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gracious God, we pray that you would, by your spirit, speak to us today that as we open up what seems rather rote today, that our spiritual lives would not be obscured by what you want us to see and hear. And so speak to us even now through your son. Amen. OK, well, uh, last week we, we zeroed in on the Ten Commandments, which is really important. Uh, but um, it, it really uh, I hope that you were able to read a little bit more as Moses began to elaborate on what it looks like to live with one another. And really the first time uh, the civil precepts. Uh, of the Ten Commandments are fleshed out, and as this nation of Israel is coming together, this is where God says this is how you ought to live. And even though much of it is uh, based uh, or or directed, rather, to the people of Israel, it still has something to say to us. Um, Last week, I mentioned uh, the need for us Uh, to continue to hold up the Ten Commandments as the basis for uh, our own uh, lives and what God demands of us. And in case you're wondering, uh, Article 7 uh, of the 39 articles that Anglicans uh, allegedly believe in uh, says this. uh, Although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. So ceremonial laws, civil laws, those aren't to be received. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments, which are called moral. And so when God speaks here in the Old Testament, that we, we should pay attention and realize that he's not just speaking to the Israelites who are coming out of Egypt. He's speaking to us as well. And after you get beyond the Ten Commandments, and even as you move into chapters 25 through 31, where we are this morning, this is the part everybody wants to skip because it's super boring. Right, let's just be honest. You know, when God starts using the word cubits, you're out, right? Like, I don't need to know what the measurements are. And, and if you're like me, you're trying in your mind to figure out wh- what does that actually look like. You know? and, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to explain to a contractor how you want your countertops to look or what. You can be as plain as you possibly can, and it still doesn't make any sense. And so I want us to actually stop this morning and look at chapters 25 through 31, where God is giving Moses Moses exact details as to what he wants his tabernacle to look like. And uh, as much as we might want to skip over, uh, there are some really important things that God is saying to us in these chapters. Now, if you have your Bibles, Exodus 25, uh, the first thing that God says is, how are, he answers the question, how are we supposed to build this? How are we supposed to put this together? And what's the answer? Contributions, right? The people of Israel uh, are, are whatever it is that they've taken with them out of Egypt, which can't be much, whatever it is that they could carry. Uh, they have this and that's what they're going to use in order uh, to, um, to put together uh, this uh, sanctuary. And the very first thing God says to make is to make the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you want to know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark do a great job. Uh, That's exactly what it looked like. Uh, And so you can uh, watch that. And isn't it funny, the the movie rating system where it says, like, PG, and you think, oh, my kids can watch it. And you're like, nope, nope. You know, fast forward, uh, can't watch that. Uh, PG doesn't mean PG anymore. But... Nonetheless, uh, Indiana Jones actually does show us what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Now, interestingly enough, this is something that, uh, that I want to, uh, to, to stop for a minute on, that this Ark of the Covenant is going to be the centerpiece of the space that God is describing to Moses. So he starts with the most important thing. Before you build anything else, let's start at the center and we'll build out. Because the Ark of the Covenant signifies God's presence with his people. This is where in chapter 25, God says, this is where you're going to speak to me. This is where I'm going to speak to you. When you come into the Holy of Holies, uh, the most holy place, this is where you're going to encounter me. And uh, though more will ultimately go into the Ark of the Covenant, look at chapter 25, verse 21. The only thing at this point that God mentions to put into the Ark, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So what goes in the Ark? This The testimony that God gives Moses is what? His word, his word. So at the very center where God speaks, what God says, I want you to put in the ark is what I say to you. That's going to be at the center of everything. But straight away, I want you to put my word in the ark. And so he gives the description of how the ark ought to be built. But then he says, and I want you to make this table And this is a table for bread. Now, if you're like me, you read this and think, wait a minute, what about the manna? I thought that's all that they had. Uh, But clearly, they they had access to some sort of grain. Uh, They were able to make uh, loaves of bread. And yet this was not uh, for their consumption, although the priesthood was going to be able to consume these, uh, but they really were going to be an offering up to God uh, there in the tabernacle. And so God says, I want you uh, to make this table and put this bread as a reminder that I'm going to give you this day your daily bread. This is an offering up to me. And so uh, if you want to really get a a more in-depth description of this showbread, uh, you can go to Leviticus 24, and it outlines a lot of how this is all going to function with the bread table. And then God says, I want you to make a lampstand of pure gold. Now, you actually probably know what this lampstand looks like. It's the original menorah, right? Except this is seven branches. And uh, and it's uh, beautiful and it's ornate. And there's actually now using these exact specifications. If you go into the old city of Jerusalem in this glass case, there is a lamp stand that meets these specifications that was built, not just so that we could look upon it, but built by people who are in hope of building a third temple. And that this is the lampstand that will go into it. Now, where did the original lampstand go? Rome. Rome. Well, not the original, but, but the lampstand. We do know that a lampstand that meets these specifications and why you can go to Rome and you can see in a frieze from ancient Rome, the Romans plundering the temple. And in it, you see this Roman guy in a toga carrying out, the, you know, these guys carrying out this big lamp. Um, so where it is, we we don't know now. But uh, it really, I think of all the things, what you're going to see as we walk through this a little bit more is, is God's concern. He, he likes beautiful things. And so as you read these descriptions of even the fabrics and and what he wants this to look like, the golden lampstand is probably one of the most beautiful things. And you can see, uh, well, let me just read some of it, um, some of it. Um, it's made of gold and it's fla- and there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of lampstand out of one side, three on the other. Three cups made like... Almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms. And, And it just goes on like that. And so it really is a remarkable, ornate, beautiful thing crafted only out of the finest of materials. But here I want us to stop and to be very careful that we're not looking at every single thing that God says in these chapters and to try to interpret some sort of deeper meaning to it. Because why did God command them to make this lampstand? You got to read ahead, but that doesn't say, he doesn't say explicitly this is why you ought to do it. There's no natural light in the tabernacle. It's completely closed in and dark. You need a light. And so it's a really pretty light, but there's no theological significance to it really whatsoever. It's just a really nice lamp. And, and so, you know, a lot of people will try to end, well, this means this. And, and I think it's nice to say, well, it's sort of the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. And that's all well and good. But really, God just saying you should make a real pretty lamp. Uh, and, and, and that 's that 's enough, and so they need light and uh, and so God gives it to them and then he gets into the exact specifications of the tabernacle. Now, um, I wish I had my you know grade school overhead projector here uh, to be able to show you this, and you can get online and you can look up uh, the tabernacle because again, even in spite of the description it 's hard for me to hold in my head. Uh, what this all looks like. But basically, it's this great big rectangle, and inside this big rectangle is a smaller rectangle that is divided almost nearly in half. The outside, uh, confined in the larger rectangle, is a courtyard, and there are some things in uh, the courtyard. There is a, uh, a bronze uh, bowl uh, that is uh, for, for ceremonial washing, And even to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, uh, you're going to make this mistake unless you've got me telling you in front. But there are these really nice water fountains. And you think, what a great place to fill up my water bottle while I'm in the middle of the desert. And uh, you will be attacked immediately by a very Orthodox Jew uh, who will tell you that that's not for your water bottle. It's for ceremonial washing, right, to wash before you approach what we call now the Wailing Wall uh, in Jerusalem. And so there's a bowl there uh, for ceremonial washing. Of course, these uh, these pillars are going all the way around, and there are linen hangings up between these pillars, creating an outer wall. There is an altar of burnt offering as soon as you come in uh, that is very ornate. And then as you make your way to the uh, entrance of uh, of what is uh, going to contain the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, There's you walk into the holy place. And in the holy place, you have the lampstand. You have the table for the bread. And then you have an altar of incense. And then on the other side of that, you have a a veil uh, that you go through. Uh, Well, only the priest could go through that. And there you have, in the most holy place, you have the Ark uh, of, of the Covenant. Okay, so you've got kind of your mind's eye of outer courtyard with some things going on. Uh, holy place, which has the showbread and the golden lampstand and the incense. And then you go through the veil and then you're at the Ark of the Covenant. And if you read the description of uh, how this is supposed to be built, what it's to be made of, uh, what it's supposed to look like, it, it's, it's really, really detailed. And these specifications are indeed uh, followed. Now, what happens in the tabernacle? Now, you know, you may have remembered over the summer when we were in the parking lot. And even as we've moved into the building, I referred to that time as our tabernacling period. Uh, And why? Because it's movable. Right. This can be picked up and and moved as the people of Israel go throughout the wilderness uh, for 40 years before they enter into Canaan. And of course, uh, even after they move into Canaan, they have the tabernacle. And then even under David, the king, so you've got King Saul, you have King David, you have the tabernacle. And the tabernacle did kind of... uh, uh, find a more uh, permanent place uh, until saw so- uh, and, in uh, and, well it kind of moved around a little bit, but more permanently, and then it uh, finally located to Jerusalem, and then the tabernacle was done away with, and Solomon built the first temple. So um, this was something that was meant to be easily well. It would have been a huge pain in the neck. For any of you that have gone camping and had to set up a tent and then take it down, that's bad enough. Uh, they're, they're really having to, to take this stuff up and, and move it around. But what's happening in the tabernacle? Well, if you look, jump ahead to chapter 33, <clears throat> verses 7 through 10, um, a synonym for the tabernacle is the tent of meeting. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out out of the tent, out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Then Moses entered the tent The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that beautiful? When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, I wonder if that was on his business card, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun. A young man would not depart from the tent. So Moses would go out. He'd go into the tent. He'd go into the tabernacle, and everyone would go and stand at the door. They'd see the pillar of cloud come and surround uh, the tabernacle, letting them know that God was present, and Moses was speaking to God as if God were his friend, and God to him as if Moses were his friend. So one, the tabernacle was the meeting place with God, It showed the people of Israel that God was their God. He was the great I am. And he was a personal God that came and visited them. Uh, It also showed that God was holy. Because where, where is the tabernacle set up? Outside the camp. And yet, everyone would stand at their tent door. And when Moses would go in, they would worship. Now, let's stop for a minute. What does it mean to worship? Now... Most of us would say, well, we just did that at 9.15, and we're about to do that at 11.15. But actually, uh, when the Bible speaks of worship, it includes that. But more than that, it is God, it's giving God his worth. And this gives us a very clear picture of what worship is. Worship is living your life as, you are in the, as if you were in the real presence of God. So you're not just encountering God in, in the nave at 9.15 or 11.15. You're encountering God all the time. And so it's just as much worship how you live your life Sunday afternoon until Sunday morning as it is when you're there on Sunday morning. I have a friend who is the rector of a church in Sydney, Australia, and the church was really being blessed. It, it went from kind of a, a dying place and it began to explode. And it was in a residential neighborhood, and parking was a was a great difficulty. Uh, and so, because of the great growth of this church, basically the churchgoers became really bad neighbors and started blocking driveways and parking places where it said no parking, no exceptions. And uh, one day, one of the neighbors must have had enough of it. Called the police and said, "This is a real problem." And so the police came out and started issuing tickets. And one of the parishioners and and the, the the rector of the church were out there and walked up to the police officer, and and they said, "But how can you do this? How can you do this? We're here for church. We're here to worship, and you're writing us a ticket." And all of a sudden, it dawned on the rector who put his hand on the shoulder of the person who was saying this. And he looked at him and he said, what is a greater display of worship? What we're doing that building or honoring our neighbors. And thereby honoring God. Do you understand that? So the worshipful thing to do was to not block somebody's driveway. So when we're behind the wheel on 280, you're worshiping. And it's pretty clear that until I worship myself, I see you speeding up, you're not getting in. This is, this is my lane, not yours. Uh, I mean, it goes from there. It, it just absolutely goes because, but when I'm on the road, this is God's road. You know, I, I won't put a fish on the back of my car because I don't want anyone to know I'm a Christian when I'm driving, right? And yet, that's worship. That, 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 that's worship, how we run our businesses, uh, how we live out our lives and relationships. That's just as much worship as it is in there. And sometimes when we come to worship, we have this notion of, and, and I would see it more in Beaufort than I, than I do here. And that's not because y'all are holier, um, <laughs> but in Beaufort, there, there are all of these swing bridges that open up. And so, if there's, a, and there's no schedule to it, and so if we saw that the church was, on, was a third empty when we started, we knew that the bridge was open. And the looks on people's faces as they piled in, and you could tell that there were fights. You know, the, the, the kids' hairs all over the place. The mom's looking at, at them, you know, and you know, she's thinking, if you had just gotten yourself together, we would have gotten here on time, but you, but you didn't, and, and, and the husband's sort of moping along in the back, and, and he's there, and they finally get in the pew, and all of a sudden their countenance changes, and it's like, we're in church, let's get serious, pray now. <laughs> and that's a false understanding of worship. I mean, that's why in our communion service, Cranmer brilliantly has us pray, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all, heart, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Worship is not cutting off your real life. Worship is saying, God, this all belongs to you. You know, the messiness of me trying to get the kids here in the morning or to school or to whatever it is. And so my, my heart is not supposed to wall itself off from you. My heart is supposed to give it all over to you here. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what the people of Israel are doing. God has come near. We're living in his presence. And so we're going out. And worshiping may not necessarily be raising your hands or praying or singing Uh, But it's simply acknowledging God, you are my God and I'm your child and I'm living in your presence and I'm living in relationship with you. And there's not one part of my life that doesn't belong to you. And so I offer myself up to you as a living sacrifice. So that's one thing that's happening uh, in, in the tabernacle, and that's in chapter 33, verses 7 through 10. The second thing that, if you keep reading, you're going to see, is that offerings and sacrifices are made in this place. Uh, that is uh, thanksgivings uh, for for some one for Mother's Day. Uh, it's not it's not in there, but but it would be an event like Mother's Day where you would give up an offering and saying thank you, Lord, for your provision. Uh, it would be sacrifices uh, for. Uh, uh, any sort of sin uh, offering. Uh, ordinations take place uh, there in the tabernacle. Dedications take place in the tabernacle. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, happens there in the, in the, uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, and so it's, it's a busy place. There's, there's regular things going on. Uh, and of course, as Moses leaves uh, the tabernacle, uh, remember uh, that Joshua stays behind, right so there 's still work to do uh, on a day to day basis there in the temple now the tabernacle, of course, is a for i mean in the tabern- in the tabernacle the tabernacle is a forerunner of the temple now, as I said before, they bounced around uh, quite a bit and uh, and david really 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 really, really wanted to build a temple uh, to the Lord. And this is toward the end of David's life. Um, And uh, this is chapter 17. Uh, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar. I've got a really nice place here. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So even Nathan says, this is a really good idea. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And God says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. Now, remember that. God went with the tent. The tent didn't go with... You see what I'm saying? That, that the tent is just the location. It's, the tent is not God. But I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus says, shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, And Lord of hosts means Lord of armies, right? This is God saying, remember who I am, who brought you up out of Egypt. I took you from the pasture. Now, this is David's own testimony from following the sheep to be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And then he continues on, and I will subdue subdue all of your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled. And then one who is after you shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So already you can hear, he's not just talking about Solomon, is he? Because Solomon's throne's not forever. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And then if you keep reading, there's this great great, uh, sort of um, conversation about God saying, well, what do you think it is that you can do for me? Right. Do you think that I'm cold and homeless and I'm just waiting for you to build me this nice place? Like, I'm God. I'm going to be OK. You worry about you and you let me worry about this. And so already when God is saying, yeah, there's going to be a temple built, but it's not the kind of temple that you're envisioning. It's a temple uh, that that is going to be built uh, by one whose throne will never, ever come to an end. And yet a physical temple was built in 950 95- These dates are astonishing to me. Just think about all the things the temple has seen. Solomon built the temple in 957 BC. That is a long time ago. And then uh, that temple uh, lasted for, um, for uh, almost 400 years. And then uh, the Babylonians destroyed it. And then Ezra and Zerubbabel and others went back to Babylon and built it. And that was 515 B.C. Now, you may remember this second temple, it was nothing like Solomon's temple. And the Jews started to get kind of a little man complex and and saying, you know, this is we need to restore the glory uh, of all of this. And so Herod in 1 B.C. said, we're going to really make this as grand as we possibly can and so they did uh, all that they could and, and really made the temple nice. Uh, it certainly, uh, in, in, in shape and form, resembled Solomon's temple simply because that was, um, that was the plan that God had for it, mirroring, mirroring the tabernacle. And like the tabernacle, the temple was outside of the city. So when you go to Jerusalem today, what they call the old city... Didn't even exist when Jesus walked the earth. That's that's the new city. The old city is in ruins in its south or on the bottom side of the hill because the temple was up on a hill, and then there was a hill above it, which is where Jesus was was crucified. And in seventy A.D., uh, Titus's armies destroyed the temple, and since then, uh, all that's left is the Wailing Wall. Uh, which is just a retaining wall. It's just there to hold the dirt in. So, you know, in our yard, we had a big tree and we had to build a wall in order to kind of keep the tree where it was. And the tree's not there anymore, but there's the wall. Um, and, uh, and yet, because that's where God's glory was manifested, uh, to this day, uh, people visit that wall because they believe that God's glory has permeated even that wall. The Bible calls it God's Shekinah glory. Uh, And and so uh, that's all that's left, and and that's where they go. And I'm really interested. There have been a bunch of riots up on the Temple Mount. So there's uh, the Dome of the Rock, and there's also a mosque uh, up where the Temple used to be. And actually, it's very difficult. I've got to get to the bottom of it because I don't know what Jews are going up on the Temple Mount uh, because most devout Jews will not set foot on the Temple Mount. Why? It's not because they think it's been desecrated, although they do think that. But because the Temple's not there, they're afraid that they will step over wherever the Holy of Holies was. They're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of actually even just stepping over where something was 2,000 years ago. Um, but, of course, uh, we know, and this is where all of this is going, uh, what is the meaning of the tabernacle and the temple? They all point to Jesus. That's the meaning of it. That's what it's all about. Uh, these are appetizers to the real thing. And what I think one of the great struggles was for the people of Israel is to see Jesus as the true temple. Uh, th- this was blasphemy for Jesus to say that, I was the tr- that he was the true temple. And so the point of the tabernacle and the temple, and this is one of my only sort of uh, footnotes, is they're not a guide to how we should worship or build our churches. That is not what God is saying here. They point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have beautiful things. That's not the point uh, that I'm trying to make. The point I'm making, though, is that God doesn't live in buildings. Where does he live now? In us. So, John chapter 2. Jesus got himself in a whole lot of trouble. Just this one time. John chapter 2. Uh Jesus has cleansed the temple. He drives the money changers out. And, uh, and he says to them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Um, and so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. That's Herod's temple. And I will, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Right, that, that's the point of the tabernacle and the temple, that Jesus is the true temple, You can go and look in uh, the letter to the Hebrews. That's what all of Hebrews is about. It's about looking at the function of the tabernacle and the temple and saying, this is about Jesus. This is how we have access to the Father. And then later on in Revelation 21, uh, verse 22, this is the present reality. Where's the temple? Now, Paul says in Ephesians, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 at the tail end, he says that even now we're seated with God in the heavenly places. And then God gives John a revelation. This is what it looks like right now. This is what's going on in heaven. Chapter 21, verse, verses 22. And this is what we have to look forward to. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the almighty and the lamb where is our temple it's in heaven it's jesus but even speaking about us the temple is not just something other paul in 1 corinthians as i've gone back to paul talks about the exodus in 1 corinthians but 1 corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body jesus is not talking about gym memberships gym memberships absolutely you should take care of yourself but but what is paul saying god is saying through paul That the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, where he says this elsewhere, is now living within you. The very spirit that met with Moses and spoke with him in the holy of holies. In the God who dwelt within the temple, in the holy of holies, after the veil was rent in two by Jesus' death on the cross, now dwells within you. That's a remarkable thing. You're not standing at your door looking from afar anymore, worshiping him. He's inside of you. And in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, this is verse, verses 4 through 5. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? You, you each are stones that are coming together to form a living temple. Right? That's the description of the church. It's not a building. It's a people with Jesus at its center. That's what the tabernacle and the temple are all about. And so, as I said earlier, there are lots of people who want to rebuild the temple. For what? Now, if you're a devout Jew, I can understand that. Um, I was uh, at a party one time uh, of some friends. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting. The family is half devout and the other half is Jewish, like the Olive Garden is Italian. And um, we, were, uh, we were at a bar mitzvah and, um, and I was talking to one of the guys who was kind of devout and I was just sort of laughing about how accurate sometimes Woody Allen's assessment is of, of Jewish families. And, uh, and he was like, well, he said, wouldn't you be a little bit wound up if you knew that there was no sacrifice for sin for almost 2000 years? So after 70 A.D., there's there's no day of atonement. Uh, There's no ongoing sacrifices. And of course, what I I told this person in the moment, who was a good enough friend that I could really go for it, and I've said, well, you do know that there is a sacrifice that's been made, and the most Jewish thing that you can do is to believe in Jesus. That's the once and for all. Everything that the temple represents, everything that the tabernacle represents, is embodied in this one-man who is God, who was the perfect offering for our sins and has been raised from the dead. So all of it points to Jesus. You know, if I had more time, I would probably stop and talk a little bit more about the beauty of it. Um, There's a professor by the name of Riken, It's Phil Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College, his father, uh, who uh, wrote a book called Art for God's Sake, It's well worth reading. It's beautiful. It talks about the craftsmanship uh, in the Old Testament and God's concern for things of beauty. And yet, what I would challenge us with is that, remember, it's to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, not the holiness of beauty. What's beautiful, and this is demonstrated in the tabernacle and in the temple, is God's holiness his otherness, but now he's come near in Jesus where we actually can enjoy the holiness of God uh, unmediated and just bask in it and live in it and through it. Questions, comments, concerns about... So, see, it wasn't that boring. Um, I mean, the bronze altar and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and I will say this before we get to, um, to next week, is just when you think, isn't this lovely and they've built this beautiful thing and it's really amazing and it's everything that they want... They make a golden calf. Uh, so it's never enough for our hearts. Yes? Can talk about that prayer of Jesus your heart and what theological thoughts are that prayer? Yeah, I think that it's, I do think that it's important that at some time in our lives uh, we confess with our lips and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Absolutely. Uh, that there does come a day where we need to appropriate that for ourselves. Uh, but what I would argue is that if you're confessing Jesus Christ with your lips, he's already in your heart. right? Uh, John talks about this in 1 John, that you can't say that Jesus is Lord apart from God's intervening work in your life. Um, and I think sometimes that gives us a false assurance... You know, if we think, well, I went down and I prayed at the front of the church and invited Jesus into my heart, but then I've gone and just done whatever I've wanted. Like, what that really is saying is because I did this, I'm going to heaven. Rather than saying, no, Jesus did this, and this is why I'm going to see him in heaven. And so, yes, it's really important, I think, that I believe in the sinner's prayer. uh, But that prayer is an acknowledgement of God's salvific work in Jesus and you acknowledging that rather than you doing something in order to gain favor with God. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm glad. Good. <laughs> That's a, it doesn't happen often. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about it is is that I know lots of people who um, who have gone down at a Billy Graham event or a type of... and And that was a defining moment for them and it changed their life forever. And then I know people who have gone down and... It didn't make any... Uh, they went down because of an emotional response and, and the sort of floods of people, and they said, yeah, that sounds like a... I mean, if you're presented with, would you like to go to heaven and be in paradise forever or burn in hell forever, that's not a supernatural decision. <laughs> right? That, that's just, yes, no. Um, the supernatural decision is, is, this, is this idea of worship, of I am going to walk in your presence for the rest of my life. Hard as it may be, I know that you go with me, but I'm giving my life up to you. Okay. Anybody else want to talk about the tabernacle? He, he said, of course you'd say that. Um, and I'm like, well, then maybe I, didn't, maybe I don't need to say it then. I said, what, what, are you gonna, what, what are you going to do with this Jesus? And I said, and then we got into Acts um, and Gamaliel, who is still very much revered as a, as a teaching uh, force within Judaism. Uh, and, and Paul, the apostle, learned under him. Uh, Gamaliel says uh, about Peter and the apostles' preaching, look, if this, is of, if this isn't of God, like every other nutty itinerant preacher who does something around here, it's going to fizzle out. But if it is of God... There's nothing that we can do to stop it. And so actually, that's where our conversation went of, <laughs> yeah, here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're talking about this, and, 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 and God is doing something uh, you know, different. Uh, but, um, but I think for him, too, the, the whole idea of, of Jewish identity, especially in light of the history of the 20th century with the Holocaust and, and the political state of Israel, there's just a whole bunch of layers there, um, that are, that are hard to, to peel back. But, but, but actually somebody who's a devout Jew that, that really does understand the temple. Jesus is easier. It's easier to explain Jesus to them than it is for the, for the person who says that stuff's archaic. So, um, I forget who tells the story, but there's a story of of a at, at St. Joseph's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, where men go to train for the Roman Catholic priesthood. Uh, there was a professor up there, and he'd get these first-year students who were just starting out on their pathway to the priesthood. He would always ask the same question, and he would say, you know, there's an anthropologist who has taken his—and it's not very PC, so I'm quoting— that would take his— um, his, uh, students in to this dark, deep jungle, and there they would observe this native sacrificing a chicken to a corn god, and, uh, and the anthropologist would say to his team, now look at this pagan, uh, stuck in the woods, backwards, uh, person, uh, aren't you glad that we're here to bring them enlightenment? And then the professor would say to his students, who's right? The one sacrificing the chicken to the, to the corn god or the anthropologist? Now, you've got to stop and think about it, but you realize the chicken sacrificer is right because at least he acknowledges the need for blood, where the anthropologist has kind of moved on. And, and so I think for most people, we've moved on. But somebody who understands, and, and you saw this uh, throughout the world where the missionaries would go, entire nations would come to know Jesus because of the idea of propitiation, the idea of, of the need for blood sacrifice. And so all of a sudden, it was a relief for them to hear, we, the chickens are safe now, <laughs> right? We, we don't need to do that. Jesus has done it all and so i have in the and i have a relationship with this person so they weren't offended in the least and actually that's a great conversation to have with somebody uh who is who is jewish and and just to start by asking you know how do you know that your sins are forgiven without the temple and then go from there Carolyn, were you going to ask something Well, it, that, gosh, that's such a good story and, and is worth reading and understanding what happens when you don't listen to God. But if you remember, the ark had been carried away. And I think it was the Philistines that, that got it. And, um, and really bad things a la Indiana Jones started to happen, to, happening. So they, they sent an email to the, to the Israelites and said, you can have it back. And uh, so they went and got it, and there's a whole story involving that. Uh, but, but when they got back, David danced before the ark naked. His wife was not happy. She, uh, there's, a, there's a scene where she says, you, and, and he says, I will become even more undignified than this. Because he rejoiced that that which symbolized God's presence was back, back with, with God's people. So it's more than just like a talisman. It was, it was David acknowledging God is with us and, and, and just worshiping with reckless abandon, which is very difficult for us. Very difficult for us. And in fact, we probably, like Michael, would have been ashamed um, in, in that moment and yet David says, "No, no, no, this is this is right, and this is good, and this is pleasing to the Lord, please, I'll keep you close home don't but but you can dance to the Lord. it's okay all right, let's pray, oh Lord, uh we thank you that uh you're constantly pointing us to Jesus and for Over a thousand years, the tabernacle and uh, more than that, Lord, uh, thousands of years, your tabernacle and temple pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would not look to anything that is beautiful or man-made, but we would look to the true temple, Jesus Christ, and to understand that your spirit now dwells within us and we are living stones being built into a temple unto your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.